I'd like to start tonight by telling a story from the time of the Buddha. The story is about a very young monk, a very young boy. He was seven years old, and um, at that age, he he asked his mother if he could ordain. And so, um, his mother, having had the sense from the time he was gestated in her womb that he was a very special child because um, as soon as, as she said, as soon as he was in her womb, all of the dull and um, stupid and careless servants became wise. And so she thought, well, it must be, you know, this child is so wise. So she made this resolve that she would never stand in the way of whatever her son wanted. So when he was seven and he asked to ordain, she agreed. So she took him off to the monastery, and uh, her family had been a supporter of Sariputta, the um, very senior right-hand disciple of the Buddha. And so they, they took him off to the monastery, and they spent seven days there with him. You know, you can kind of imagine a parents leaving their seven-year-old child with the, the, mona- the monastics. You know, they might want to spend a few days there. So they spent seven days, they spent a week there, offering food and probably, you know, saying goodbye to their son. And then on the eighth day, the um, Sariputta was going to take him out for alms round. But he, you know, he had never gone out for alms round. He hadn't gone out for alms round in the, very fir- in the first seven days. And so they lagged behind a bit. And um, you know, he, he didn't necessarily want uh, this young monk to be with all the other monks because he didn't quite have the right manner of carrying the bowl or wearing the robes or all of that. So he wanted to give him some extra instruction. So they lagged behind a little bit. And as they were um, walking to the village for the alms round, the young boy uh, was kind of curious about what was around him. I guess, you know, he'd come from a more remote village or something, and he was seeing things he'd never seen before. So he was asking Sariputta about them. And they saw this ditch uh, of water by the side of the road. And he asked Sariputta, what's that? And Sariputta said, it's a, it's a ditch that the irrigators use to guide water to their crops. And, and the boy said, does water have a mind? And he said, Sariputta said, no, water doesn't have a mind. And, and then the boy said, so they can lead such a thing as water wherever they want it to, even though it doesn't have a mind? Shariputta said, yes. And the boy said, and I'll read this part to you. If they can lead such a thing, this is what he thought to himself, apparently it says that this is what he thought to himself. If they can lead such a thing as this, which lacks mind, to whatever place they wish, why cannot they also have that mind bring their own mind under their own control and cause it to be enlightened? This is a seven-year-old we're talking about here, you know, so obviously a very bright seven-year-old. So they walked a little further on and they saw um, arrow makers. And again, he asked what they were and um, what they were doing, and Shariputta told him that they were straightening out reeds to make arrows with. They were putting them over uh, a flame, a hot flame, to straighten out the reeds to make them useful as arrows. And again, the same question, do, do those reeds have a mind? And the same reflection, if they can straighten out those things that do not have mind, why cannot they not straighten out their mind? And then further on, they saw carpenters building wheels and shaping wood. And again, the same questions, the same response, the same reflection. So after seeing all of these three things, so the monks are, you know, they, 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 they walk along one behind each other, or the senior monks in front and the junior monk behind, and the, this novice monk was carrying Shariputta's alms bowl with him, because that was the form at the time. 
And um, he stopped, this young boy, after seeing and reflecting all these things, he stopped and, and he said, Venerable Sir, would you take your alms bowl back and, and um, let me go back to the monastery? I'd like to meditate. So he was inspired by seeing these things to straighten out his own mind, to see how, whether he could lead that which does have mind to where he wanted it to go. And so Shariputra, to his credit, didn't um, chastise this upstart young novice for giving him his bowl back, and in fact, requesting that he go for alms round for him. <laughs> oh, by the way, would you get my alms food too? <laughs> I'm going to go meditate. <laughs> this little, you know, seven-year-old boy. And Shariputra agreed, so... Um, the boy went back to the monastery, and the story is, as these good stories go, you know, that this seven-year-old boy became completely, fully enlightened before his noon meal. Um, so I like this story for a couple of reasons. One, that, um, you know, this kind of it, inspiring, it's inspiring to think of the possibility that a child that young actually has the capacity to become enlightened. And at the last retreat, one of the last retreats I taught, I was teaching with Gil Fransdahl, and I told the story, and, and we had a little conversation about it afterwards, and he said that he hadn't heard this story before, but um, he said that it is said that seven is the youngest that it is supposed to be possible to become awakened. Seems pretty young to me, but... <laughs> So it's, it, I think that's interesting, you know, that it, 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 it has been recorded as a story in the time of the Buddha that monks that young actually became fully enlightened. But the more practical reason I find this story inspiring is because it really points to, um, oh, first of all, I'll read, I'll read the, the, um, the verse that the Buddha was inspired to utter after he came back to the monastery and heard this story and determined that this young monk had become fully enlightened. He said, Irrigators guide water, Fletchers shape arrows, Carpenters fashion wood, and sages tame themselves. This is a verse from the Dhammapada. And the story that I told you comes from the, the Dhammapada commentary. Most of the verses in the Dhammapada have a kind of a backstory that go with them that is supposed to be what happened that inspired the Buddha to utter these verses. So that is what that is the origin of this story. So the other reason I find this um, this story inspiring is that it points to that taming our minds, is like a skill. You know, it's kind of comparing, in a way, the guiding of water, you know, that irrigators guide water, that <coughs> Fletchers shape the shafts of arrows, and that carpenters shape wood. It's comparing that to what people who sit down and meditate do with their minds. That, that the actions that the carpenters, that the arrow makers, that the irrigators use our skills and that we can cultivate the skills of meditation. So this term, skillful, in Pali, there's a term that's often translated as skillful or wholesome. The term is kusala. And apparently this term, kusala, I mean, that the usual way it's referred to in the, in the Buddhist texts is that it refers to those actions and intentions that are wholesome and helpful, that guide us away from suffering and towards freedom from suffering. So skillful actions are those that are based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion that are based in generosity, kindness, non-cruelty, renunciation. 
So those are skillful actions and intentions. But the term itself, the term kusala, is also, it was also apparently used for things like carpenters and irrigators, that if they were good at what they did, they were called kusala. So they were skillful. So this term, kusala, in the, the texts, has this double meaning of um, a skill, you know, something that can be cultivated, and these, uh, this, this direction towards the wholesome. So I'd like to talk about the skill of meditation tonight, how we cultivate that skill. The skill of meditation is about learning how to wake up, learning how to guide our minds so that they don't, out of habitual tendencies, move us into our patterns and habits of suffering over and over again. When we're not mindful, as I said the other day, you know, when we're not mindful, our habits and patterns kind of take over. With mindfulness, with the practice of meditation, we can begin to guide our minds in the way we'd like them to go. So in this way, it's a very apt analogy to the irrigators guiding water that when the irrigators guide water, they're guiding that water to the places where it's useful for the water to be, to water the crops and and support the crops to grow. And so in a similar way, we guide our minds in the way that supports our minds to become happy, to let go of all of those actions and intentions that drag us into struggle dissatisfaction, despair, depression, anger, frustration, boredom, all those difficult states of mind. So in a sense, what we are cultivating in the skill of meditation is the skill of learning skillfulness, the skill of learning what is helpful for us, what is not so helpful for us. So there's a list of five qualities. It's called the five faculties. And these five qualities can be looked at and understood as the qualities that need to become strengthened in order for this skill to become strong for us. So the five qualities are confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And we can actually look at these five qualities as being almost general qualities of that would need to be cultivated for any skill, just depending on what, what we're doing, the way these five qualities would manifest would be slightly different. So, you know, we, in order to accomplish something, anything, we need to have some sense of confidence that it's possible to accomplish it. You know, if it's playing the piano or playing basketball or whatever we'd like to accomplish, whatever we'd like to become skillful at, we, have to need, we need a sense of confidence that it's possible. And from that confidence that it's possible, we may get some energy to begin to practice, to begin to engage. And the practice, the engagement, is with kind of paying attention to what we're doing beginning to be aware of what we're doing so that we can grow the actions and um, movements that are needed for that particular skill. So, you know, playing the piano. You know, you start with 
seeing the page of notes and kind of matching the notes to the keys and maybe figuring out how the chords go and it's all pretty slow at the beginning. But it's with kind of that awareness of what you're doing that the skill begins to grow. So that's the mindfulness part. The awareness of what we're doing, how we're engaging with this task. And then there is the, the kind of the, the practice or the continuity or the repetition of that task. The repetition needing to uh, be done over and over again in order for the skill to become strong. You know, if you, if you sit down to the piano once a week, you're probably not going to get very skillful at it very quickly. You need to sit down and really practice it. Do those actions over and over again. This is the aspect of concentration. This uh, engaging in the actions, repeating it for a, a period of time. And from all of this engagement, the skill develops. The uh, capacity to do this with ease develops. We understand how to engage with this task. And that's the understanding part of the wisdom part. So with respect to meditation, the... um, the confidence is in the capacity to engage with the practice and that helps support an energy to engage. And what do we engage with? We engage with mindfulness and paying attention to our present moment experience. And doing that continuously over periods of time, that continuity of mindfulness brings concentration. And that, all of that together, helps us to understand our experience, our inner life, helps us to more deeply understand the things as they are. So the usual flow of these five faculties starts with confidence or faith as the first one in order to, you know, progress through them. that's, That's where it typically starts, that list. But, you know, in my thinking about it, it feels to me that it makes sense to actually start with wisdom. And we can kind of think of these as a cyclic pattern. And we need some kind of wisdom of what we're doing, what we, what we are trying to engage with, in order to begin to engage. Some understanding of what it is that we want to do. We don't just start by having faith in nothing. We have faith in something. And that something in the, in the teachings of the Buddha is wisdom. So I'd like to start there, to start by talking a little bit about what is it that we need to understand to begin, to begin to have confidence, to begin to engage. So there's a teaching about wisdom that there are three different sorts of wisdom or three different ways that wisdom comes about. There's the wisdom that comes about from reading and listening to information. That's the, that's the wisdom that we gain by reading books, listening to Dharma talks. Then there's the wisdom that comes about by reflecting on what we've learned. Actually engaging our intellectual capacities, thinking about it, reflecting on how it might impact me, how it might relate to my life. And then the third kind of wisdom comes about through cultivating our minds through actually taking action to engage with practices and teach with the practices and teachings. So the first two of reading and listening and reflection are essential underpinnings for the third. Without those first two, 
without learning a little bit about what the meditation practice is about, what the, what the uh, Buddha's path is about. We don't have anywhere to practice. So we start with some kind of an understanding. And the, uh, the engagement with those practices results in the wisdom of the third kind, which is the wisdom of insight. I'll come back to that as, after we've gone all the way through all of these faculties again to, to show how this kind of comes about to support insight. So what is it that we need to understand? What is the wisdom that the Buddha offers us? It's phrased in a number of different ways. And, um, you know, it's not necessary, as I've said, I said a couple of days ago, it's not necessary to understand all of this the first way that, um, that this wisdom is expressed is as the Four Noble Truths. So it's kind of the key core teaching of the Buddha. He said, you know, this is, this, is really the, this is really the central teaching. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And the Four Noble Truths expresses that. It expresses that there is suffering in, in the world that there's suffering in our lives. And that the cause of that suffering is, it's, it's a mental experience, it's a wanting. It's essentially wanting things to be other than they are. That we cannot, it, it, we seem to be, it's very difficult for us to just rest with experience as it is. We want it to be some other way. And that's what leads us into this suffering. So those are the first and second noble truths. The third noble truth is that it's possible to let go of that wanting and that craving for things to be other than they are. That's the third noble truth. That that, that, that freedom is possible. It can be realized. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path, there's a way that we can engage to free ourselves from this craving, this wanting. The, the Eightfold Path. So that's one of the ways that this wisdom is expressed. Another way that's expressed comes back to this term kusala again. That when we understand what is skillful with respect to leading us towards happiness and away from suffering, when we understand in particular the underlying intentions and motivations that lead us towards suffering and lead us away from suffering, that that is wisdom that will help to free our hearts. That the wisdom of understanding that actions taken out of greed, aversion, and delusion will ultimately lead us into stress, dissatisfaction, unhappiness, suffering. Actions taken out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put that more positively, generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Actions taken out of those motivations tend to lead us towards happiness, towards letting go, towards freedom. Another way that this understanding is expressed, or the wisdom, another aspect of the wisdom that supports our waking up is the teaching on karma, which is essentially a teaching on cause and effect. That when we take certain actions, and this is a, it's kind of a, an, an expansion of the understanding of what's skillful and unskillful. It is this understanding that skillful actions lead us to happiness, unskillful actions lead us to suffering kind of a little two-minute summary of the teaching on karma. I'm not going to go into more detail than that because it can get really, really vast. Another way that this wisdom is expressed is that when we have this understanding, we understand experience, we understand 
the nature of experience to be impermanent. We understand the nature of experience to be basically unsatisfactory, unreliable, as a place for us to be happy. That if we try to hold on to something that's impermanent as a kind of, this is what's going to make me happy. This, this thing, this will make me happy forever. That thing is unreliable. It will not make you happy forever because it is impermanent. It is inherently impermanent and in its dissolution, in its falling away, any happiness that you had that was independent on, independence on that will also fall away. And then there is the truth of the process nature or ephemeral and ephemerality, kind of that that not there's no no thingness to anything, because everything is changing at such a rate that it never really holds still to be a thing. It's always in some process of change, and we impute them a thingness for a time. But they don't inherently have that thingness. So there's a potency to this wisdom. As I think I said a couple days ago, you know that we don't need to understand all of these kinds of wisdom before we start to engage. All we need is a little bit. I kind of like to think of the you know, the wisdom of the Buddha being this really rich meal, you know, and it's like you can just take a tiny little taste of this meal and get the whole explosion of flavors in your mouth just through that tiny little bite. Any little bit of wisdom that you can connect to and begin to engage with will open the door to the whole of the Dharma over time. So we can begin with a little bit of understanding. You know, just a little bit, perhaps. The, the first noble truth is an interesting place to begin. You know, there is suffering. And the Buddha, in the statement of that first noble truth, he didn't stop and just say, yes, this is something you need to believe. You know, there is suffering. He said, this is something to be engaged with. Suffering is meant to be understood. That's what we're supposed to do with suffering. We're supposed to understand it. So there's an action associated with that truth. With all four of the noble truths, actually, there's an action associated with each truth. So if we just start with that one truth, understand suffering, and we understand what the Buddha means by understand, is not an intellectual understanding, but an experiential understanding. It's pointing us to turn to our experience, to turn to look at suffering, to understand how it comes to be, what are the causes and conditions that put it into play, what helps it to fall apart. So with a little bit of understanding, a little bit of intellectual understanding in these aspects of wisdom, we may begin to want to engage, want to actually uh, you know, at least be interested in the thought, well, maybe this could help me out. So this is the beginning of confidence. Confidence that we can engage and confidence that it would actually be helpful for us. So initially it might be a little bit of a leap of faith. You know, sometimes some of this wisdom that the Buddha offers sounds counterintuitive. I know that, you know, when I first heard this about understanding suffering, I thought, well, why would I want to understand it? Don't I just want to get rid of it? You know, what, what's this about understanding it? But I began to, I, I, I saw in my, own, in my own practice that my own willingness to engage and, and at least kind of give it a try came when there was a lot of suffering. It was, it was, you know, I was in kind of a place of despair in a way. And I felt like I'd tried just about everything. Kind of felt like I'd hit bottom. And I was like, well, I've tried everything that I, I know of to be happy, and I am just so miserable. And that 
very hitting bottom actually made me more open to something that sounded counterintuitive. Okay, well, okay, it says pay attention to your emotions and don't act on them. Well, I'll give that a try. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'll see what happens. So that's the beginning of confidence. I mean, it, I didn't believe that. I did. The, the confidence, often confidence, the term confidence is, a tra- the translation of that term is often translated as faith. And to me, confidence is a, is a more resonant term at times, because faith to me means believing something that I may not understand. And for me, it wasn't about believing here. It was more of a willingness to try. It was a willingness to say, okay, I don't understand how this is going to work, but I'm at least willing to engage. I'm at least willing to try. And this actually has been a way that I've worked with confidence over and over again in my practice. That, you know, the Buddha didn't actually say, you need to believe this. He said, come and see. Try it out. There's a term that's used for the Dhamma, a couple of qualities of the Dhamma. One is ehipasiko. And this term translated means come and see. Come and see for yourself how this works. You don't need to believe it, but try it. And I'm kind of scientifically inclined, and so I just looked at it as well, okay, the Buddha said if you do it this way, this will be the result, so I'll at least run the experiment. I'm willing to see what happens if I pay attention to these emotions, just turn towards the feeling of the emotion instead of doing something about it, acting on it. And so by running the experiment, and as I said, this this dharma is so rich that any little piece of it can really bear fruit. And as we begin to engage with it, often the, uh, we begin to see the benefits, we begin to see the results. And that seeing the benefits begins to verify that little bit of wisdom. It's kind of like, yeah, I see, I'm beginning to see that this is helpful. I see that this is changing my relationship to this experience. It's the second quality that the the um, Dhamma is described as having the Pali is opanayiko, which means leading onwards. And to me, this is what it is. What it is that you know, we get a little a little taste of the Dharma. We apply it. We engage with it, and it benefits us. And because of that benefit, we go, oh, this is helpful. Let me try it more. Let me engage more. So it's got this onward leading quality. So as confidence builds, we tend to engage. We um, have energy to put into the practice. So this is the second of the five faculties, the quality of energy. So in this context, you know, in the context of playing a piano, the energy is around practicing the piano. Here it's around engaging with the wisdom or the understanding that um, whichever bit of wisdom you, you found supportive for you. So, you know, understanding suffering. So the energy, it's the energy directed to the practice. It's not simply energy directed to mindfulness, although that's a big part of it. But it's got this this. Uh, kind of foundation of wisdom underneath it, kind of pointing us, this is the direction we want to be going. So we're not simply guiding water randomly through any which where, we're guiding water to the crops, we're guiding water to the seeds that need to be fertilized, need to be moistened. So likewise, we're, we, we need to have some wisdom about what direction to guide our energy. And that is the wisdom that we spoke about earlier. So energy can be cultivated by making effort. Often the term energy and effort, they're often 
um, used interchangeably. Um, but there's a, there's a slight difference. There's a difference between them. And I'd like to kind of talk about that, clarify that a little bit. And there's one, uh, one passage in one of the texts in the Samyutta Nikaya that says that the energy, the faculty of energy that we're talking about here is the faculty that, res- it's that quality of mind that results from making wise effort. So effort leads to energy. Now that sounds perhaps a little counterintuitive. Now we think that effort, that we need energy in order to make effort. And we do need some amount of energy in order to make effort. I mean, we need, we're here sitting here, we're alive, we've got enough energy in our bodies to be sitting upright here in the room. That's about all the energy we need to make this effort. So it doesn't take a lot of energy, actually, to make the effort. And that effort, then, in turn generates energy directed to the practice. So I want to talk a little bit about this effort, because effort is so often, and Greg talked about this some last night, too, and I think it bears repeating because it is so often we so we have a, I think it's cultural that you know we really think in this culture that the way to get things done is to really dive in there and just you know engage and do it I'm just going to do it we really you know we we bring a lot of energy a lot of effort to our activities And that kind of effort, you know, the kind of effort that that Greg talked about, you know, sitting down, the first thing in the sitting, okay, I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to be mindful for the entire 30 minutes. How do I do that in this first minute? How do I generate enough effort to be mindful for the whole 30 minutes? It doesn't work. As you know, you know, it doesn't work. But that's kind of how we think, you know. It's like, Going to a gym, you know, oh, I've got to lift these heavy weights, I've got to, you know, we tear a muscle. So the, the kind of effort that we need to make is really light. It is just enough effort to be present for a moment. Right now, you know, pay attention to the sensations of your hands. Notice the sensations of your buttocks on the cushion or chair or bench. Notice the sensation of your feet. How hard is it when I say these things? You know, often, you know, almost instantly you can kind of touch into that experience. That's the level of effort we need to make. We just have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again light effort many, many, many times. So this is a different way of making effort. A simple persistence. It's just, you know, this very light touch to staying with our experience. There's an analogy I like, and you know, there's a it's kind of like we need to learn how to balance how much effort to apply or how frequently, it's not so how much effort, how frequently to apply the effort, I should say it that way. It's not so much how, how strongly to effort, it's the strength of the effort has to do with the frequency of reminding yourself to be aware. And as the energy gets rolling, we don't need to remind ourselves as frequently. We can kind of ride the wave of the energy that's there. There's an analogy I like to use. I know some of you have heard this analogy, so just bear with me. That uh, I think helps to uh, illustrate this. So you know those scooters that little kids ride on? You know, when you start out on a scooter, you know, the way you, you hold on to the little thing at the front and you stand with one foot on the rail of the scooter and then you tap the other foot on the ground to get going. And when you start, 
You have to tap your foot on the ground pretty frequently because you're starting from a standstill. But as you get going, you need to tap less frequently. It's kind of like that with our meditation practice. At the beginning of a sitting, at the beginning of a retreat, early on, we need to tap frequently. We need to remind ourselves to be mindful more frequently. But then as the energy gets rolling, we need to have a kind of an ability to read that energy because we, it's easy for us to over-effort. You know, we think we need to be reminding ourselves to be aware, be aware, be aware. But if we're already aware, Joseph Goldstein once said, it's kind of like trying to turn on a light switch that's already on. You know, the, the energy is already there. So kind of learning to, to ride that, learning to recognize when we need to tap again. You know, like on a scooter, you, you ride for a while, and when you, you, you start to learn, when you start to wobble a little bit, you need to tap again, and that'll get you going for a little bit longer, and then, then you notice you start to wobble again, and then tap again. We can get attuned to the energy in our minds that way. We can start to see, yeah, I'm pretty present here. You don't need to, you know, you can pretty much hang out with that. But, you know, just see that maybe you need to, just a little gentle reminder. And that reminder can take the form of a note. The noting practice is a really helpful way to use this. Every few seconds, just a little note kind of nudges the mind. It's like that little tap on the scooter. So, this learning to read this energy takes its trial and error, you know. We'll continually be falling off on one side or the other, applying too much energy or not enough energy. Applying too much energy will get us wound up, it'll make us too tight. Um, and that kind of effort tends to drain energy. You know, that, that, that kind of effort where I sit down and it's like, okay, I'm gonna be, be mindful of the whole sitting. <laughs> tends to drain our energy. This light touch, it doesn't take that much energy to, to make that light touch. And the, the accumulation of that builds. And then we can fall off on the other side, that we get a little bit lax, and we kind of, it's so pleasant to just sit here riding that wave of energy that we forget to remind ourselves, and we drift off into wherever we go. So we need to learn through trial and error how to read our energy, how to, to, to learn how to remind ourselves, learn the balance around energy. So a lot of what we are directing the energy to is being aware, being mindful. The term for mindfulness is, is uh, sati in the Pali, and that root of that term, sati, comes from the term for memory. So, you know, we can think of, you know, mindfulness has a component of remembering to it, remembering to be aware, remembering awareness in the present moment. That's one way to look at mindfulness. Another kind of working definition is, um, knowing what's happening while it's happening. It's not just knowing, you know, it's not, the, it's not just the kind of general awareness that we roll up through our lives with. You know, we can, you know, be wandering around and, you know, doing things and kind of, kind of knowing where we are, but not really be present. And yet if somebody asks us, what have you been doing, you'll remember, you'll know what you've been doing. But that's not the true mindfulness. It's, it, the mindfulness is you know, when we really know in the present moment what's happening in the present moment. The mindfulness task of this practice is exploring our inner world. It's, it's about exploring what's happening in our minds and bodies. Not so much about exploring what's happening out there, but kind of the interface between the world and our bodies. So how seeing happens, how hearing happens, 
how our minds work, how our minds process information. So mindfulness reveals to us how our minds work through this inner exploration. And it kind of gives us a a couple of different pieces, a couple of different things that we learn about how our minds work. One of the things that we learn is about what suffering actually is, especially with this perspective of the Four Noble Truths, and perspective of understand suffering. We start to see what suffering is in our experience. So for instance, you know, the feeling of frustration. You know, there's that feeling in our bodies. And typically we take, you know, before we, st- we run into this practice, at least I know, you know, before I ran into this practice, I took that feeling to be a signal that I needed to do something to the world. You know, something needed to be fixed or changed, or somebody else needed to change the way they were doing something. So that, that, that's the kind of usual movement, is that we try to get rid of that feeling of frustration by changing something in the world, changing the way other people behave. And we think that's the way that we'll be happy. And in fact, we've become happy that way, you know, by doing things to change our world. We find that there's a little bit of happiness that results. It lasts a little while, and then we have to rearrange our world again. And we have to do that over and over and over again because nothing lasts very long. And so the Buddha suggested, the Buddha's wisdom suggested that a more reliable way to become happy is to let go of the frustration itself. The frustration itself is the suffering, not the situation that we don't like. It's the frustration itself or the anger, or the depression, or the fear, or whatever your pattern is, whatever your struggle is. So the wisdom of the Buddha suggests we should turn towards that feeling. Observe it, get to know it, get to see how it comes to be. This is another piece of what mindfulness begins to show us. Mindfulness begins to show us cause and effect. When I behave this way, when I engage this way, this is the result. So we, we start to get some insight, again, into this skillful and unskillful. So when I engage out of wanting something, I see, I see that that wanting itself is, is challenging and unpleasant. You know, when I get... When I get the thing that I want, I get a brief moment of feeling okay, but then there's fear immediately. Am I going to lose that thing? Or, or there's you know, sadness or depression or, or loss when it actually goes away. So we start to see, we start to gain insight in behaving, acting out of wanting, ultimately is not terribly satisfying. You know, we, we see a thought in our mind. And we see a tendency to follow that thought and create some mood or emotion in our minds. I, I saw this on one retreat. I, I was kind of shocked when I saw this. You know, I had a, a strong, pretty strong pattern of loneliness. And I would just like be, you know, move into loneliness a lot. And at one point I saw this, I was sitting at lunch and you know, eating my lunch and I was fine. And, I saw this memory arise in my mind about being with an old friend and doing something that, you know, we really enjoyed doing together. And I saw my mind reaching out to that memory with the intention to become lonely. And I was like shocked. It's like, why would I want to become lonely, you know? But there it was. I mean, it was, it was so clear that, that there was this, oh yes, loneliness, let me wallow in that. I know that feeling. Yes, I know loneliness. That's me. It's kind of cozy because I'm so familiar with it. So we actually sometimes want to put ourselves into these states. And when we can see with mindfulness, we can see this. So this, you know, this is the way our mindfulness works a lot, you know. We get an education into the suffering of these states by being with them. You know, spending time with loneliness. Like, oh, yeah, this doesn't feel very good. Yeah, okay. This is how loneliness feels. There's heaviness, there's contraction, 
there's a feeling of weight. It's you know, kind of a not a good feeling. And then when the mind sees that it's wanting loneliness, it remembers, oh yeah, loneliness doesn't feel very good. Maybe I shouldn't go there. And it can let it go. And I've seen this happen in my practice so many times. It's, it's quite amazing that through this education we get about suffering, when the mind starts to move in that direction, it, it understands. It's had that education. It's like, ah, hmm, ah, no, I need to go there. And it's not something we have to do necessarily. We don't necessarily have to try to stop it. We just have to give the mind this education through mindfulness. So we see these causes and conditions that lead us into suffering. So as we stay more present, as we cultivate this mindfulness and the, um, we stay more present with our experience moment to moment, this begins to cultivate concentration. The continuity of mindfulness itself is what results in concentration. Concentration, other terms for concentration, I like some other definitions. Concentration often tends to have a kind of a narrowing, focusing kind of sense. The word itself gives us that narrowed sense. There's some other words that I like. Stability, composure, collectedness, settledness. All of these describe the state of mind that is concentrated. Essentially, it's the state of mind where the mind stays aware in the present moment, over time. So there are two different ways to cultivate this continuity of awareness. Kind of two basic ways, two two main camps or two main practices for cultivating this. And one is one that we're all pretty familiar with, the one-pointed concentration staying with a single object. And this is a really great way to cultivate concentration. It's an easy way to cultivate concentration because we, um, you know, the mind can stabilize. It's pretty easy to recognize when it's on the breath, off the breath, on the breath, off the breath. So it's pretty easy to recognize when we're present with the breath. So it's, it's relatively easy to learn to collect the mind that way. So we can stabilize the awareness with the breath and we see the mind starts to settle down. It's not running off into thoughts all over the place. And we, we see also that we're, you know, so we're not getting pulled out of the present moment. We're not reacting to things. It feels pretty good, that state. feels pretty good. So this is kind of the classic way to cultivate concentration. Another way to cultivate concentration, and, and in fact the... Um, you know, the, the reason why this one-pointed concentration works is because it's stabilizing the awareness. It's not the object that's so important. It's the stabilization of the awareness. And you could pick anything. It could be, you know, an idea of a, of a color. It could be a word. It could be the breath. You can stabilize your mind on, on just about anything. And, and it doesn't particularly matter so much. It's the awareness the kind of the continuity of awareness that brings the concentration. And we can cultivate that continuity of awareness on changing objects, on changing experience. And this is a different way to cultivate concentration, where we enter into kind of the flow of our experience, recognizing just the changing flow or the river of experience, the river of sensation of our being. This kind of concentration is a little harder to start with because it's so easy to fool ourselves that we're actually aware and present when we're actually thinking about something. So it takes some ability to know what it means to be aware and present to begin to cultivate this kind of mindfulness. And so often teachings start with a kind of a settledness on one object and then open into this more uh, field of changing experience. 
It's opening into change where the mindfulness and concentration can lead us into the deepening of wisdom. So we're back to wisdom again. So the the mindfulness, the concentration, the, the, the being with experience moment to moment begins to point out to us, begins to show us the truths of all experience. We really deeply see, experientially, not intellectually, we start to really recognize impermanence, for instance. I talked the other day about watching wanting, seeing if you can just hang out and watch wanting, seeing it get strong, pull on you, and then potentially you might see it disappear. So in seeing that, if you see that, if you can actually watch that wanting, pick something really minor, you know, like wanting a piece of chocolate. You know, there was some chocolate out there the other day, you know. Feel the pull, feel that desire to go pick up a piece of chocolate and see if you can watch it until it goes away. When that wanting goes away, you will see that nothing has changed in the environment. It is only in your own mind that anything has changed. And you are free from the feeling that something is off, something is wrong here, because I don't have this thing that I want. It's the wanting itself that's the source of the suffering. So this is insight. When we experientially recognize and understand this, by seeing it directly in the moment, seeing that wanting disappear, is something you never forget. If you see it in the moment, vanish. It's quite eye-opening. So this is the third kind of wisdom, the wisdom of insight, the wisdom that results from mental cultivation. You understand deeply in your being the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering doesn't come by thinking about it. And so we've come full circle, the cyclic nature of these five faculties, the wisdom, supporting faith or confidence, the, the basic understanding of wisdom, supporting confidence, confidence, then supporting energy, the energy to engage, which supports the being here, the connecting with experience, with mindfulness, And the energy and mindfulness together, bringing mindfulness more continuously through moment after moment brings on concentration. Mindfulness and concentration together gives us a penetrating insight so that we can can see the truths of impermanence, the truth of the unreliability of experience, of anything, as a place that, yes, this is what's going to make me happy. We, can, we see the, the relief of the letting go of the wanting for things to be other than they are. Deeply in our being, we see that we're much happier when we let go than when we're trying to hold on. And we see this truth that there isn't actually anything to hold on to or anyone to hold on to it. It's just a process of change, just a process, causes and conditions. And with this wisdom, this, this insight, you know, with that insight we get yet more inspiration to continue the practice. At least that's how it's worked for me. That you know, I, seeing something, a simple understanding of how, you know, the mind moves to, wants to become angry or wants to become lonely and watching it let go of that movement. It's like, wow, this stuff is powerful. I'm going to keep doing this. This is really helping me out. I see that, you know, I'm not becoming angry when I used to become angry. We see the benefits. We directly experience the benefits. And so it encourages us to have more confidence in the practice. And so the, the cycle begins again. So these, these qualities of the five faculties, 
when they become strong and balanced, they support our deepening into understanding and, in, in, and insight. And they yet then encourage us to keep going. Keep going until we become completely free. So let's just sit together for a minute or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.